here we see these. Now, if you look at Colossians chapter 3 for a moment, um, it kind of speaks to this a little bit. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, and we'll actually come back to this in a minute too. He says, verse, he's talking about putting off the old man in chapter 3, verse 5 of Colossians. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Now, these are kind of like the big sins. If, you, if I call fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. But then you go down to verse 8. But now you yourselves are to put off all these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie one to another. Do you see that? So he focuses on more outward, so to speak, sins here, but then he's saying put these off, or not put them off, put them to death. If you, if you get angry and rage, well, you've got to deal with that. You know, if you, if you lie or tell tale, you know, as a Christian, we have to surrender that. We have to overcome that. Does that make sense? Because it's for our benefit. Why? Because God wants to use each one of us to use our speech, our talk, uh, to be empowered, as it were, by the Holy Spirit of God. You know? Okay. I mean, you saw that with Lot. You know, he, he kept moving it closer and closer to Sodom, and he lost his effectiveness. And so thereby, he dwelt among the people of unclean lips, so to speak. But when he went to warn his sons-in-law, what does it say? What was their response? They, they said, you are as one who mocks. His words had no weight. In other words, they, just, they lost their... And of course, Jesus says, if salt loses its savor, what is it good for? That men tread upon it. it, it it's just you lost that power uh, to witness or to share because it's not backed up with uh, the actions. Uh, okay, so um, back to James. And so that's some of the negative. I think we had a longer list there before. Um, Somebody suggested the tongue is like a thermometer. Uh, just as a thermometer declares the temperature level, so one's conversation reveals the level of his spirituality. Swearing discloses a profane heart. Impure stories disclose a filthy heart. Complaining discloses a thankless heart. Criticism discloses a jealous heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Say Luke chapter 6. So it's kind of an indicator. You know, how, how does... And that's why there cannot... Our actions, or who we say we are, have to be in alignment with not just our talk, as they say. If you talk the talk, you've got to walk the walk. Otherwise, it's, we're out of step, out of harmony with God's plan. But the speech has the positive. Then this is just the small list we had, the positive uses of the tongue. We can... Yeah. yeah. Oh. You want that back? Yeah. Okay. That one? Okay. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, the positive, this is just a short list. We kind of got, uh, we can encourage with our tongue, we can compliment, we can be thankful. That's very important. We see that in the life of the Apostle Paul especially. We can pray, we can praise, we can teach, we can inspire. So these are all the qualities we're striving for to be used of God uh, that our words really will inspire or encourage. Any thought on this positive? And, and a big key here is... Uh, is where it says in uh, Proverbs, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Think of somebody you know. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a pastor, a teacher, a man, but somebody you know, when you get with them, the words they speak are just inspiring or encouraging or uplifting. You know, 
is you really want to kind of be on that person because when you leave, uh, you've been encouraged. You know, you've been, you've learned something or you've been edified in some capacity. Uh, it's been well said, some people bless the room when they walk in and others bless when they walk out. But we want to be the ones that bless when we walk in. <laughs> but to be that person, uh, you bec- our lips become a wellspring of life. It doesn't always have to be spiritual or necessarily sharing. It can just be encouraging, insightful, or maybe we don't say nothing, especially in a grieving process. We're just with the person. You know, you don't have to be Job's friends. Um, let me see here. Things are getting ahead of me. Okay, this is a foundational stone uh, for speech, I think. Speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. Speaking the truth in love. What does that mean if you just do one or the other? This is a couplet. What if, what if you just speak the truth, which is a good thing, but no love? Yeah, it can really be hurtful. I mean, it can, you, you're telling the truth, but in terms of attitude, timing, context, it really can be caustic, and the person might shut down. But if, what if you just tell love? Everybody's okay. Don't worry. God loves everybody. There's no coming judgment. God would never, you know, huh? They'll never get the truth. If, if you went to a doctor and all he wanted to speak was kind, compassionate, and loving things to you, and he's holding off the blood test, the x-ray, and everything else, which you got a serious, and he's not speaking the truth, well, he's not a good doctor. You see what I'm saying? So to speak the truth in love, we are actually discerning and we're learning how to minister our words to others. Yes, please. Well, yeah, Pastor mentioned that this morning when he talked about the attributes of God. He says one major attribute is love, but corresponding to that, the other attribute is what? Holiness. holiness. So if, if, if I was preacher and I just stuck on the holiness of God, which is really good, but didn't bring in God's mercy for God so loved the world, and you didn't have that corresponding element, you could become a very uh, almost a harsh judgmental you're still speaking the truth, but it's a little, it's not the whole counsel of God. But when you combine the, the holiness and righteousness of God with the love and the mercy of God, you're getting a more complete gospel. Does, does that, any thought on that? Do you understand? The, and, it, and it requires effort on our part when we minister to people or just talk to people, have a conversation. If we just speak the truth, it can be a little like this cartoon. I don't know if you can read that. He says, as I get older, I feel a compelling urge to tell the truth as I see it. You've never quite mastered the art of ironing shirt sleeves, have you? I've got to fight that compelling urge. <laughs> See, he's speaking the truth. <laughs> but, uh, you know, not necessarily the right moment in time. So, coming back here to James, he, he, he will say, uh, and we'll, we'll kind of leave this with these words, but the importance of the words. And think of the tone of American uh, the culture today, just the tone or the words or the lexicon of culture and that words that are now being permitted into the everyday conversation, cultural conversation, that 
they would never be there before, you know, back in the, in the day. It just, uh, but but it, it suggests where we're moving as a culture if you use words as an indicator of an uplifting or somewhat of a declining culture. Does that make sense? Yes, please. Kind of swing. <laughs> do a swing because it is nice to have people No, no, I, I think you're, it's a good point. Uh, to be honest and to be frank, uh, that's one thing we do have in the American culture is we can be frank or I can get it off my chest. Whereas when we lived for years in Southeast Asia, they had a real big thing on number one, saving face. You didn't want the other person to be shamed or lose face. And so they wouldn't be direct. You know, so you, you wouldn't resolve conflict sometimes because nobody wanted to address it. They used to say, uh, what was it? You have to take that road. By Tangni. Don't, don't take the direct road, teacher. Go the road over here. Go way over here. And then come back over here. Well, you know, come on. I mean, you, <laughs> you're not really being, you're not helping the situation. You're just avoiding. Uh, but uh, I don't know. You know, I just think if you look, and what's going on, in, let's say in popular, let's say television. If you made a listing of words that are now acceptable and somewhat celebrated, I was raised in the 50s with TV, I think we had three stations back then, and compare that word, that lexicon, then to today. It, the, but the, what's problematic there is trend lines. Where is it going? And there's this thing in artistic freedom where people say, well, we're just pushing the edge of the envelope. Did you ever hear that expression? We're just pushing the edge of the envelope. Well, where's that envelope going? Okay, so here, now he's going to switch here in James chapter 3 to verse 13. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Remember he just says, let not many of you be teachers? He set up chapter 3. Now he's saying, okay, so who, who of you think you're wise and have understanding? Then, typical James, he says, let him show it by good conduct that is that his works are done in meekness and wisdom. And that's a very important thing because what may have been happening back there were teachers were coming in. I'm not saying they're necessarily false teachers, but they had pride and they were, it, the focus was on them. So they weren't necessarily walking in meekness or humility. And, and of course, we're told in the scripture that uh, Moses was the, at his time was the meekest man of his time. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter uh, 11, when he says, uh, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light. Learn of me, for I am humble, meek, and lowly in spirit. So he's, he's, meekness has nothing to do with weakness. You know, that's where we can get things kind of out of balance. Meekness is just strength under control. If you think of a thoroughbred horse as opposed to a wild stallion, I mean, they just had the Kentucky Derby. I mean, these are powerful animals, but they're, they're under, all that strength is directed and under control. So, too, to be a truly meek person indicates you might be very aware of the power you have or the influence you have, but you're keeping it under control to be used appropriately and not to be self-promoting. Or, or Any thought on this? Again, this is... This is a big issue, and, and they had that issue back then where it says, let your conduct be displayed and done in meekness and wisdom. 
And we're going to pick up on this thing about wisdom in a moment. Uh, but wisdom, a teacher, wisdom, there's many definitions. This is just one possible working definition. True wisdom is based on knowledge, but it is more than knowledge. It is the ability to live in a manner pleasing to God because you understand the truth and you live in constant submission to his spirit, applying truth to life, to all of life. That's wisdom. See, wisdom is, is getting knowledge, understanding knowledge, but then knowing how to apply that in everyday life. Because we are a people that have moved from the industrial age into the informational age, and now we're on high acceleration. We're going into a new, uh, you know, with artificial intelligence and robotics. We're entering into a whole new kind of a realm where we put a, a lot of emphasis on information and knowledge. Well, has knowledge helped the world? I mean, yeah, it has in a sense, but nevertheless, the same problems are there in terms of conflict, war, anxiety, depression, substance abuse, et cetera, et cetera. Why? We don't know how to use wisdom to use knowledge to live life. That's a big, big problem. Any comment on this? Does that, does that make sense? We, we have to know, you know. Well, yeah. Oh, it's everything, yeah. I mean, to, to come here and to under, we're going to see in a minute, uh, well, how, do you, how does wisdom begin? Where, where does wisdom start? The fear of the Lord. There's your starting point. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It says that in Proverbs. So when that's out, we're on our own. We're going to, see, knowledge will take a man to a moon, but wisdom will get a man to heaven. A big difference. Uh, not, Knowledge tells us how to live, you know, how to live life, make a living, and et cetera, et cetera, which is good. But wisdom tells us the real, as you say, the purpose or the meaning or the beauty of life and that it has a higher purpose. Yes, honey. Well, I think, you know, purpose, Just a little bit. Is Steve okay? Oh, that's good. Yeah. I'm sorry, Steve. Okay. Um, yeah, that we can keep moving forward because we have this. Because we have wisdom, we, we it's not that we figured out life, but we're starting to get life in right alignment of what is the purpose of life. You know, what 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 are we here for? That, that, that is a problem. If we don't know what we're here for, we don't know what we're act, how our behavior should be or how we should, how we should live life. You know. Anyone else on that? You know, yes, Fred. There's two leadership principles that are in short supply right now, particularly in the military. One of them is wisdom and the other is weakness. You have a lot of knowledgeable military leaders. They 
Yeah, right. I mean, the, the, it's, a, it's a good, you know, and again, James is speaking 2,000 years ago, but this has such direct application to our lives today. Somebody as well suggested that the simplicity of the gospel teaches me how to live in a complex world. See? We've got it. I mean, as believers, we're highly resourced people, not because of anything we've done, but through Jesus Christ to have forgiveness and deal with sin and guilt in our lives and then to be empowered and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, and then have the Word of God, the instructions, and then to have pastors, teachers, evangelists to help, and fellowship to help. We're, we're highly resourced to live the life that God has called us to live. Yes, please. Yeah, that goes into adult. I mean, that, that goes across the line where people just don't have... Somebody else have their hand up? Yes, please. Yeah, you know, it, it, I'm sorry. Yeah, the, the man's wisdom, when you study man's wisdom in the scriptures, it's very inadequate. Man's wisdom, for example, if you turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 for a moment, um, it, it's simply not adequate to live life, and man thinks it is. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it will say... Um, Verse 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, I will bring it to nothing, uh, the understanding of the prudent. Verse 20, where is the wise, where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish, what? The wisdom of this world. Verse 21, for since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Do you see this? He's, he's comparing godly wisdom, earthly wisdom, and he says it's, it's not getting man anywhere, even in this present age. 
you know, like the pastor said this morning, I mean, people have no explanation of how this all started. No, 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 no valid explanation. You cannot say there was nothing and one day nothing exploded. I mean, and, and over time and chance, we arrived at our present state. That's, that goes against just common sense. And therefore, he will go further in verse 14, where he'll say, um, uh, verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise, and has chosen the weak things of this world to put shame those which are mighty. Uh, verse 30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us what? Wisdom from God. That's why it'll say in Colossians 1, in Christ are hidden all wisdom. Oh, see, he explains, he is the great explainer. As C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Jesus the same way I believe the sun came up this morning. Not only, not only do I see it, but by it I see everything else. Life makes sense. Creation, condition of man, attributes of God, plan of redemption, how to receive Christ, how to get things right, how to prepare for eternity. You see, that's the wisdom. That's wisdom. And if you stay with this thought, if you look at Romans chapter 1, I'm just staying on this point of wisdom because I just think it's, it's so important. Romans chapter 1, of course the famous verse is, is verse 20, uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even the eternal power of Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What's he saying in verse 20, in your own words? Romans chapter 1 verse 20. What's he saying there? It kind of ties in with Psalm 19 that Pastor Mark put on the board this morning. If somebody said explain that to me, please. Chapter 1, verse 20. Pardon me? Okay. So, okay, so you look at creation... And he says, you should know by just looking at what's known as general revelation, just looking at creation, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth your handiwork. By looking at creation, you should know there's a creator. And how, when did this revelation start, does he say in verse 20? From the very beginning, clearly seen, not seen, but clearly seen, so that they are without, nobody can say they did not know there was a God. Now, general revelation or just nature doesn't lead us to salvation in the sense to understand the plan of redemption. You understand, that's the gospel required. But by looking at creation, we should know there's a creator. There's a very important point, and it's a major attack point in, in the atheist argument today that, no, you cannot, you cannot say there's intelligence, you cannot say there's design, you cannot imply a designer, just whatever, what a happenstance or something. That's not what the Bible says. So if man turns his back on that, look what, what it says in verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became what? Fools. Fools. Now one, this is binary. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. The, the fool has said in his heart what? And God says, if you say there is no God, you're a fool. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Who are you going to put your money on? <laughs> But I mean, it's that binary. There's no in-between on this matter. Do you understand? And, and if, we, if we turn our back on God and the wisdom of God and his instructions, 
we are going toward man-made wisdom, explanations. Here's how you should live life. It affects all areas of life. Everything from marriage to morality to the value of children to the purpose of life. On and on and on and on and on. You see? Because if, if man will not acknowledge God, who becomes a God? Man starts making God-like decisions. If, if man doesn't believe he has a soul, what becomes the most important thing now? The physical body. Like the Greeks, you know, the physical body becomes everything. If man doesn't believe there's an afterlife, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. This life becomes everything. See, it's, it's flipped. Everything's flipped. Any thought on that? If we don't come at it from God's wisdom, we'll come at it from man's wisdom. That's kind of like where we're at today. I'm in villages in northern Thailand. I give this illustration. You know, we're all sitting around, and I'll take bits of metal and plastic and throw it in a bag and shake it real hard. They're watching what I'm doing because they're basically atheists. Buddhism is atheist. And I shake it, and I pull out a watch I'd put in there before. I go, look what happened when I shook all these materials together with a lot of energy. And they laugh, and they say, you're crazy. This could never happen. I said, they're teaching that at the best universities in America back in the States. And so we go from the fact that to have a design, a watch, where you can look closely and see who made it, so too by looking at all this out here, a tree, a bird, planetary systems, you should know that there's somebody that made that. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, right. But it also helped me to, to figure out what those boundaries are. And if we don't set that, we are not in our own lives and in the lives of those that God puts in our, in our care, we're not doing them any justice because that causes stress. I, I don't know how many times I've seen kids who don't get any of that, and they are constantly seeking, they're seeking repercussions. They're yeah. seeking that because that's what we're designed to need that. Yeah. To have guardrails, to have, yes, guardrails. yeah. Somebody has said, do not tear down a fence unless you first find out why it was put up in the first place. <laughs> Fences, you know, don't tear down the ancient landmark, it says in Proverbs. Figure out why that, why was that put in place to begin with, to your point. And then why, why is that? Well, children, they're going to feel extremely insecure. They might think it's freedom initially, but they're going to be very insecure because there's no, there's no limit. There's no, it, it really indicates somebody doesn't care because they're not wanting to put a, up those consistent uh, guardrails. Somebody else had their hand up on that. Yeah, without God, I mean, you know, uh, it was Alexander Solzhenitsyn talked about this, even in the camps. When they had God, or there was like a sense of hope or direction. Without that, we're in a free fall, like these free fall gravity machines that astronauts, there's no up, there's no down. And, and behavior or laws are passed on the basis of consensus. Well, a lost person trying to figure out a lost world is going to come up with the kind of answers. Yeah, fallen or lost, because we need 
we need transcendence. We need that revelation to say, you know, that's why when our Lord comes, he elevates the moral code, you know, in terms of elevates the dignity of women, elevates the value of little children, says, uh, pray for those that despitefully use you. You say that adultery is, Moses said adultery is wrong, but I say unto you if a man has lust in his heart. So he elevates, he elevates the moral code, but then he empowers us how to live up to those high expectations. You know, it's beautiful. I mean, when you, especially when you come, how we re, should relate to each other, where there's neither free nor slave nor Greek nor Jew. Nor, you know, that's a whole, a whole new realm that our Lord is introducing. You know, somebody suggested he came in and uh, reversed all the price tags on the showroom of life. You know, you, just, you want to be the first, be the last. You want to be great, be the least. You know, it's really interesting. When, yeah, John, yes. Oh, verse 27? Yeah, uh-huh. It was what St. Augustine says. He says, our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find their rest in thee. There's nothing out here that's going to ultimately fill that which is in here, but God alone. You see, but after that, then we can start appreciating what he's given us out here, food and friends and changing seasons, etc., etc. But otherwise, somebody as well said, man's problem today is he doesn't know what he's doing on this planet. He doesn't know what he's doing here. Until you orient it with God's revelation saying, oh, I see, you know, and then you can start structuring one's life according to God's plan. Otherwise, what are we doing? You know, we just, it's like the, uh, just chaos in, in a sense. Yes? Love. Yeah, I mean, freedom implies responsibility. So Janis Joplin had it right. Freedom's just another word for nothing else to lose. You know, freedom has responsibility. Freedom has consequences. Freedom. Okay, so now going back to James, he's going to harp it on this idea of wisdom and um, foolishness. And he'll say here, verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, this is the same thing where he talked about um, how sin it starts in the heart. Remember in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, But each one of you is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when sin desire was conceived, it gives birth to sin. sin it, he's big on it, these things starting in the heart, inwardly. And they, they incubate, and now it's manifested. But he starts with this idea of bitter. Bitter is, is a big problem. And it will say in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, beware lest a root of bitterness takes hold in your heart and by it many are defiled. Many, how many know a really embittered person? Or ever knew what an embittered person? It doesn't just affect that person, does it? It infects the people around him. 
But how does, in the a, in a physical, how does a root start? Well, just a seed. So these things that take root could just be a small infraction, uh, a miscommunication, a perceived insult. Uh, but if it's, if it's not dealt with, that thing takes root. It, root and, then, and it'll say in Proverbs, a whisperer can separate chief friends. Just a word, you see? That's the power. And James is like using the word of God to focus on our hearts. He says, watch out bitter envy and self-seeking, which is pride, in your hearts. Do not boast and lie against the truth. He's really going after pride here. Now he's going to talk about this. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Now, here's the three things he's got, three enemies that he says it's earthly. He says it's what? Essential. And what else? Demonic. Now, what are the three enemies man has? That oppose holiness and righteousness. Say it again. Okay, then that comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The flesh, the world, and the devil. And you'll see that in Ephesians chapter 2. Those are the three enemies. And he's saying here, he's speaking to Christians here. You know what I mean? He said, he said here's where your, these attack points are coming from. Here, it's going to be one or the other, this direction. And to be forewarned is to be forearmed. You see, if we know this, then we can understand spiritual warfare as described in Ephesians chapter 6 and other places about putting on the full armor of God. But if we don't know these kinds of things, we just go out in the world and we, we may not realize uh, these attack point where these things are coming from and we don't fully understand why we're living a defeated life or why we're in bondage to certain habits or uh, these kind of issues are going on any thought on this he, he's really given us like high content here does that make sense he's given us really good insight of how to live a victorious Christian life what does it mean the world why would that be an enemy or, or one of the attack points or is it I mean what, what do you, what's your thought on that what does he mean the world. Yes. I would say it's the uh, carnal world system. It's the culture. It's the pressure from the culture. It's the man's level of understanding and the behavior therein. Okay. It's 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 it, it's not the globe. I mean, it's not terra firma. You know, it's the world system. What else? Somebody else was going to say yes. Okay. I mean, is the world pro God? No, not at all. Matter of fact, it'll say in 1 John chapter 5, uh, verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. 1 John chapter 5, I'm going to shut this thing off. Does that, you know, that, that's, that's the world we live in. And, and we, we must understand that it, it's still a good world. I mean, even in a fallen state, but the world system itself is not pro-God, so to speak. It's not glorifying God. It's not edifying God how men act and, and where we are today. That's why we needed a Savior. For God so loved the world. He sent His only begotten Son. And one day, He will put things right. Am I loud enough back there? I, I don't like when this thing starts crackling and all that other stuff. 
So that, that's where he's saying about the world and to be aware of the world. That's why when he says in 2 Timothy, Paul's in prison. Actually, we had a chance to see that prison last month in Rome. But he says, he goes, Demas has forsaken me. He used to be part of that missionary team. Why? Having loved the present world. He left that great missionary call with the apostles and the bright lights or whatever, whatever, dragged him back into that world. But then he says, only Luke is with me, which I really like. Um, so that's the world. To be aware of that, the effect the world has on us, and maybe even more so today because of all the information that comes at us on a daily basis. When this letter was written, you're looking at a uh, agriculturally small bit, you know, uh, somewhat tight communities. <laughs> I mean, you turn on your, your computer and things are popping up. You're walking through the cash out line at, at Target or images are popping, popping. It's the world. It's, it's just coming at you, at you, at you, you know. And we have to learn how to process that and discern that. So, yes, please. Can you have real faith without wisdom? Can you have real faith without wisdom? Yeah. First and foremost, everybody has faith. Do you understand? Everybody is given a measure of faith. Even unbelievers have a measure of faith. I mean, you go to Cleveland Hopkins Airport, and you get, you know, we're going to be flying to Thailand on the 28th of May. You get on that plane, and you're going to be 16 hours in the air. You got 320 people get out in Newark when we get on that plane, plus crew, plus food, plus luggage, plus everything. We're 16 hours over the Pacific Ocean. You got to have a limit. You might not think about it, but that's a certain exercise of faith. You go to your doctor. You go to your doctor, and he says the X-ray show this and that. We're going to have to do surgery. You're going to go under. We're going to cut. We're going to. That takes a certain amount of faith. Do you understand this principle of faith? You get on an elevator in a third world country. I don't know how many of us lived in third world country. They don't have that thing on the back wall. Like, you know, certified, this will hold 3,000 pounds. I've been on those things. And when the lights start flickering and you hear hydraulic lights. Well, to my point, when you see that seal of Ohio in the back of an elevator, or you go into a doctor's office and you're going to require, and you see more diplomas there, words, that can actually build your faith. You know, words have the effect of building faith. How much more so the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You want to increase faith, sit in Sunday school. No, <laughs> but I mean, expose yourself to the word of God. The word of God has the effect uh, of, of building up our faith. This is where we are. You know, we talk young people or middle age or older people. We live in a time where we, we are very biblically literate people. I mean, as a, as a, as a, as a people, a nation. Uh, even in Christendom, you know, it's, 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 we have to go back. It's a little like at the days of Ezra and Nehemiah when they came back to rebuild the temple. They discovered the scrolls, and they read them from day to night. You know, they're reading, and it was building faith, building faith. You know, <laughs> Well, yeah, it's all there. But I mean, how many heard the testimony of Molly last? It's the granddaughter of uh, Kathleen Dillon. That shows you the power of light in a place like a university. And th there are bright lights in these universities through InterVarsity and Navigators and Campus Crusade. Uh, but you're right. I mean, 
The problem is if we're not, if, I'm not just saying young people, but if you expose yourself to teachers and professors and people in authority are pounding you a worldly, uh, humanistic point of view and you don't have a counterbalance, it's not wrong to hear these other arguments or philosophies, but if you don't understand the other side of it, you see, we're meant to be in a fallen world. I mean, as believers, we're, we're called to be lights in the world, salt in the earth. But that, that, that's not the issue. I always say it wasn't the water outside the Titanic that sunk it. You know, it was meant to go. We're meant to be as Christians in this fallen world and to be witnesses and to be light. But when the world gets into us and we start compromising and we get away from the word of God, then you have problems. Okay, so he says here, um, verse 15, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. And again, he's writing this to believers. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing is there. And remember, it says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, God is not the author of confusion. Now think of a family, think of a church, think of an office, a club. If these kind of things get in there, pride, bitterness, uh, competitiveness, self-seeking, it's going to lead to confusion. Is it not hurt feelings, people exiting, people upset? It, 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 because all these things, it's like a law. If you, if you sow to this, you're going to reap this. And it's very, very destructive, what he's saying here. And he's saying, for envy, self-seeking, confusion, every evil thing. But now he flips it. He's going to show the positive side. But the wisdom that is from above is first what? Pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. What does that mean? Does somebody have a different phrase for that, willing to yield? Open to reason. Open to reason. You know, you know, when you're in discussion with somebody and if you're willing to say, you know what, maybe I could be wrong. If you just say those words, maybe I could be wrong. That really opens a door for more discussion. But if this person digs in and I dig in and nobody's getting, you know, I, I, to me, that's what's kind of going on in America today is we're getting very tribal. You know, you can't like discuss or uh, have debate or converse. It just, you know, just, but this idea of that, he's saying, be teachable, be gentle. Um, actually, fruits of the Holy Spirit. That, that, that is wisdom from above. And that's why, again, in Colossians 3 says, if you are risen with Christ, set your affections on things above. Okay? Where's our citizenship now? Yeah, it's in Westlake or Rock, but our citizenship is also in heaven. When we pray, we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done as it is in, you know, it's, it's, it's a really a kind of a paradigm shift as a believer to bring this kind of message, this kind of healing into whatever kind of community God calls us to, from family to office to club to church. That's why it'll say that in Proverbs, God hates a troublemaker, somebody that causes discord. And that's particularly so in a church. You know, when somebody comes in and deliberately sows seeds of discord, or rumor, you know, rumor, or for the purpose of destruction. It's one of the things I think is in Proverbs chapter six that says God hates that. God hates that. And Jesus will even say, uh, "Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God." To be a peacemaker and to go into a situation where there's conflict or separation, and you can broker peace. You know, that's a powerful a powerful ministry. 
because we live in a fragmented world, do we not? I mean, it's just, it's just, just what it is now. Uh, but wisdom is from above, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, <coughs> without hypocrisy. <coughs> and again, he's showing, he's speaking to a church, of course, but he's showing how this thing can operate. And, and this was not the rule of the world back then. The, the Greco-Roman world was a push-and-shove world. It was, it was about power. It was about might. It was, it was not turn the other cheek or pray for those that deceitfully use you. Or if they take your coat, give them your cloak. It wasn't that kind of... Jesus brings in a whole new, whole new way of living, you know, which I think made it attractive in one sense, but it also caused notice that they would be persecuted because it was such a different way to live you know this is my opinion is what the world wants to see from us as the church one of the main things where jesus says in his high priestly prayer they'll know you're my disciples by what your bumper sticker what by your love expressed not said only but expressed and they see that and when we work with the muslims oftentimes they'll say what what attracted them to christ or why they came to christ was being in a fellowship where they felt love where they saw kindness, where they saw mercy, where they saw friendliness, but generosity. Not so much an apologetic argument, like C.S. Lewis came to Christ through, you know, kind of logic in that, but they say, you know, we felt it, we, we, we sensed something different in this community. Yes? John, in, the, uh, in Thailand, let's uh -huh. say, with Buddhism, uh, we, we hear in this country about Zen and this mm. and that, and everyone's friendly and happy. Yeah. And, you know, It's a big question. A couple things on it. Buddhism, number one, it's atheistic at its core. There's no necessity for a creator or God in the Buddhism. Two, the, the ultimate aim of Buddhism is to get out of suffering. They say life is about suffering. Suffering comes from attachment. Get rid of attachment. Get rid of suffering. You reach enlightenment or nirvana or samadhi, whatever. But they believe if harm happens to you or good happens to you, where did that come from? Karma. Your past life. So they put more emphasis on that. But there is a compassionate... I mean, they take compassion to an extreme where they'll be extreme... If they're extreme Buddhists, they'll be a vegetarian. If they're really extreme, like a monk, when they beg... They don't beg for food, but they go early morning to get food from the villagers, they'll have a screen on this bowl where people pour water or milk, and they'll... It's not that they don't want any contaminants. They don't want any larvae in that that they might drink and kill. You understand? So... It's kind of a different take on stuff. But when you introduce the love of God, that's a whole different concept. That's a whole different concept altogether. That's a short answer to a big question. Okay, let me just finish this up here. And then he says, verse 18, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the principle of sowing and reaping. You know, this just doesn't have positive consequences. We're always sowing. Our lives, every day we're sowing. Am I not? Negative, positive, good, evil. And we're going to reap. And that's why it says in Galatians, do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap. It's going to have a consequence. You know, it's going to bring forth some kind of... A, a... So here he gives really practical applications. Next week we'll come into this whole thing where he talks about uh, humility and how to draw nigh to God. Any closing thoughts on any of this before we close? Anything?